I told you to keep your chins up. I told you all was not lost. You didn't believe me. And now maybe you're believers. As now not just one or two, but 17 other states have joined with the state of Texas in bringing suit against the four defendant states of Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Georgia. Hi everyone, I'm Jamie Dury for National Preview Online and welcome to another National Preview Online podcast. If you have not already done so, please subscribe to the podcast. The simplest way for you iPhone users is to go to the iTunes App Store and subscribe by searching for NP Online and you can subscribe that way. That's a great podcast aggregator app. You'll always be notified of any new shows that are put up. And it is a free service, and the, there is no charge for subscribing to the show. For you Android users, we have successfully gotten the show listed in the Google Podcasts or the Google Play Store. They're in a state of transition now. I understand much of what Apple did with iTunes and Apple Music a few years back. So you can get the show there. And if for any reason you have any problem in doing that, you can always download in either the Google Play Store or the iTunes App Store the free Podbean app. Podbean.com is our hosting service, and you can subscribe to the show that way. So there are numerous ways for you to subscribe. Uh, for you Android users, if you're having difficulty finding the link, go to our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash national preview online. And you'll be able to find the link there in one of my recent posts. I put it up there for you for convenience. Okay, so what do we have going on? Oh, one more thing I'd like to ask of you. Uh, if you do like the show, and I was going over the stats the other day, and apparently a lot of people, probably my most popular episode yet was the one I did two days ago on the 8th, telling you about this lawsuit and why it was so important and why you should uh, take heart because of it, our most popular show. If you really want to help me grow the show, please, regardless of which for format you use, whether you're an Android user or an iTunes user, go to those respective stores, the iTunes App Store or the Google Play Store, and please write a review of the show. The more reviews the show receives, uh, the greater likelihood it comes up in search results when people are looking for shows of this type. So, I was very heartened uh, the other night when I went home and I watched the news, and again last night, I was watching uh, Jay Sekulow's Live, which is an analysis of himself and a few other brilliant lawyers on that show, uh, many of whom are law professors, and I was very gratified to see that their analysis of this Texas lawsuit was uh, pretty much about the same as mine. Uh, and I said, and they cited the same reasons that I cited for why the Supreme Court did not elect to hear the Pennsylvania case. Now, when the Pennsylvania case was first dismissed after Judge Alito asked for briefs and the case was first dismissed, everybody felt, oh, this is it. They're stabbing us in the back or the Supreme Court's not going to take up the take up the case. Uh, and that wasn't it, because almost within hours of that, uh, you have this case being taken by the Supreme Court, brought by the state of Texas, the attorney general there, and docketed. It's on the docket. It's going to be heard. So this is not a question of whether or not they're going to hear it or whether they're considering to hear it. It's going to be heard. 
And since that time, other states joined in. Louisiana was among the first to join in. But we've had more and more states that have joined in. And six of those states have now recently asked to be able to represent themselves at the, um, at the hearing, at the oral arguments. And it's not because they have any doubts about the state of uh, Texas's ability to uh, properly litigate this case. In a statement, it says, the intervening states do not doubt that plaintiff state of Texas will vigorously and effectively litigate this case. But the attorney general of each individual state is best situated to represent the interests of that state and its people. So they want to be able to make their case about why they feel strongly that the Supreme Court should weigh in on this as well. But those six states, and, and there may be others that, that join in and want to be able to represent themselves. But you've got so many states that have filed briefs. In addition to those states, you have Alabama, Florida, Indiana, Kansas, Montana, Nebraska, North Dakota, Oklahoma, South Dakota, Tennessee, West Virginia. I mean, it goes on. And Arizona filed their own separate brief, an amicus brief, uh, in support. So there's a lot of people now that are, are looking at this. Now, you've got uh, National Public Radio. They're trying to poo-poo this. They're out there saying it was, it was a stunt. It was a publicity stunt. Um, it's not nothing that should be given any credence. Uh, people think it's a laughing stock. And one of the reasons um, they use, uh, one of the things they cite uh, as evidence of this, is supposedly no one from the Justice Department has gotten involved. No one's representing Trump from the government. The uh, United States Solicitor General... Um, hasn't stepped up, and nobody else. Well, that just goes to show you two things. One, they're idiots and don't know how the law works and what the role is of the Justice Department or the Solicitor General. Or two, they do know, and they're deliberately misrepresenting the facts so that it makes it appear that the absence of their presence in this litigation is indicative in some way of uh, a lack of efficacy in the president's case. Nothing could be further from the truth. The Solicitor General represents the government of the United States in lawsuits. The government of the United States is not a party to this lawsuit and really has no standing because the election is a matter for the states. Now, it's true what the Texas uh, Attorney General is alleging is that you know, look, look, our state conducted this election in a lawful manner in accordance with the uh, guidelines prescribed by the United States Constitution. And we're saying, if you recall, I said this on the 8th, we're saying that the defendant states, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Georgia, and Wisconsin, did not conduct their elections in accordance with the Constitution because they changed their election rules and they did so by fiat, by either executive action by the governor or by the secretary of state of one of those individual states. And they're not allowed to make those kind of substantive changes. The Constitution prescribes that those changes can only be made by the legislature of a state. And so because they did this, and the, the new manner in which the election was conducted opened up all issues of fraud and irregularities and all sorts of problems that we believe that there's false votes and so forth and so on, that the effect of this, these compromised elections in these states has diluted the validity of the votes 
in our states. It's diluting our electoral votes if these electoral votes are allowed to be cast in these defendant states. And therefore, we have standing. Now, President Trump, as an interested party, because he's an interested party since he has a vested interest in the outcome, has asked that his team has asked on his behalf to be allowed to enjoin in this lawsuit by the state of Texas against these four defendant states. So when President Trump engages in this action, he's doing so as a candidate, as a private citizen who's trying to challenge this election because the outcome of it affects him. That is not something he can uh, commandeer officials of the United States government and the Justice Department to act as his own personal lawyer and represent him on behalf. The president is a man of means, and he has plenty of money to hire all manner of private lawyers, and he has done this. He's, he's not going to improperly have the Solicitor General step in. So the fact that the Solicitor General or no member of the Justice Department is jumping on this means nothing. The Supreme Court is the court of original jurisdiction for disputes between the states. And the state of Texas and any other state has a right to appeal directly to that court for resolution of a dispute that it has with another state. Now we've got a total of 18 states on board with this. This is no small matter. Now why, as Jay Sekulow pointed out, why did they not take the Pennsylvania case? Well, for the pretty much the same reason that I told you. They didn't do it because they weren't going to get involved in every single lawsuit against every single state which um, arose from this election fiasco that we're involved in here. If they had ruled in the Pennsylvania case, even if they ruled in the president's favor, that wouldn't have changed the outcome of the election. It's only one state. So they would have had to hear another case and rule on that one. And if that was favorable to the president, that would have increases electoral vote total, but it wouldn't be outcome determinative, as the legal phrase is called. By taking this case, they now have a case that brings together the issue in all these defendant states, and a, a positive decision for the Trump team or, or, and for the plaintiff states, look at it that way, for the plaintiff states, would be outcome determinative in this election. It would change the determination of who's uh, victorious. And in point of fact, we're playing with semantics here. There has been no determination who's won. The only person who's made a determination is the news media, because they want you to believe that Joe Biden is the president-elect. They really have never challenged any of the arguments that uh, have been made by Trump's team in all of these hearings before these state houses. All they say is there's no evidence, no evidence. They bring 100 people with signed affidavits, sworn testimony. They have videotaped coverage of ballots being pulled out of suitcases from under a table in Georgia after they falsely claimed a pipe leak or a pipe burst and got everyone out of the room except for these four women, and they still say, oh, we haven't seen any evidence, we haven't seen any evidence. Trump files a lawsuit with the names of forty to 60,000 people who voted twice, plus people who don't even live in the state of Nevada. That's evidence. Oh, we haven't seen any evidence, we haven't seen any evidence. It's almost as if their, their playbook is that if they just keep saying long enough and often enough that there is no evidence that people hopefully will come to believe that there is no evidence. And if they say often enough and long enough uh, the phrase President-elect Joe Biden, President-elect Joe Biden, President-elect Joe Biden, that people will believe he's the president-elect. Well, he's not. It's not an official office, and he's not even declared the winner until the electoral votes are cast on the 14th. So now what happens? 
Well, we've got an accelerated timetable. The plaintiff states have until 3 p.m. today, which is right about now, to file their responses to this complaint filed by the state of Texas. And they're going to call it frivolous, and they're going to call it this, and they're going to call it that. But I think it would have been unthinkable to believe that the Supreme Court of the United States would not weigh in on this issue. Now, I'm not saying they're guaranteed that their only interest in weighing in was because they wanted to weigh in on behalf of the president. I'm not saying that. But it was an issue that was significant enough. There is a real issue here. And the issue is that the Constitution, the United States Constitution, although it gives great deference to the states and it always was intended to give great deference to the states, um, prescribes the manner in which the elections are conducted is a big federal issue. Now, the states within reason can pass things that they want to do. But the one thing that the Constitution definitely said had to be done is whatever the states do, those changes to the elections have to be done by the legislature. They can't be done by simple fiat, by a bureaucrat uh, or, or by the governor in that state. It has to be done by the legislative body. And that was clearly not done. Now, Dershowitz, Alan Dershowitz of, of um, Harvard University, Professor Emeritus, he pointed this out. He pointed this out um, earlier on when the Pennsylvania case was being spoken about. He pointed out that uh, he felt that the president had a very, very strong argument and that he would likely prevail in that argument where that, uh, where that case hurt. Now, it wasn't heard in Pennsylvania, but the same arguments are going to be made here. So this is a big deal. So now what is the remedy? What do they do? Well, there's a couple of things that can be done. One of the things that can be done is that they can simply throw out and decertify. They can also ask for a stay of the electors voting. They can ask for a stay of the electors being seated if they haven't already been seated already. There's several things that can be done here in this, in this whole mishigash, as we'll call it, using a Yiddish word. But uh, in the brief, the 17 states, I'll reiterate again, I'll read from this article, the 17 states argue that the Texas lawsuit warrants review by the high court as it presents important constitutional issues under the elector's clause, and it also raises concerns about election integrity and public confidence in the handling of the elections. Many times before on this show, I've talked about when the Supreme Court intervenes. I told you they, they act usually, in, whether it's a big constitutional question, they'll act when uh, it's an issue of, um, of procedural law, let's say, where the various circuits are misaligned, different circuits are doing it different ways, and they want to bring the country in line. And they also act on some days public policy or constitutional issues of the moment. Last week, uh, the polls I saw showed that six out of 10 Americans thought that there was fraud in this election. And that number is probably only growing as these hearings continue to go on and additional evidence is presented. Uh, the Supreme Court has a vested interest in doing its part in maintaining public order and public confidence in elections by definitively weighing in on this. Now, when I say definitively, they're not going to be able to weigh in on the fraud itself because they're not a court that's a finder of fact, per se. They hear 
legal constitutional arguments. But if in the back of their minds, underlying this, they believe there was fraud, and they believe that that fraud could only have taken place because of the changes that were made to the manner in which elections were conducted in the four defendant states, then I don't see any way that they could rule against the state of Texas and the other 17 states by the simple logic that the changes that afforded the opportunities for these irregularities were made in a manner which was inconsistent with that of the elector's clause in the Constitution. And therefore, if the Constitution had been followed, uh, it is unlikely these, these things would have been done because the legislatures would have debated these things and they may have implemented them in a different way in a way that if they really wanted to have mail-in votes, it might have been implemented in a different way where it wasn't subject to to this fraud. I mean, these drop boxes that were liable, people could just take them and and drop them like they were uh, dropping them in a postal service box. There's no postal worker going there. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. So we have all of these things going on. And I believe, at the end of the day, I still believe that... The attorney, the, that the attorney general for Texas was quite prescient in doing this, and I also believe that at the end of the day, the Supreme Court, if I had to bet one way or the other, since it's very clear that the Constitution prescribes this, I would have to bet that they would say that the manner in which the elections were conducted were unconstitutional. Now, they're not going to just turn around and name President Trump the winner. But they will prescribe, they will simply say that we, we now vacate those findings and um, allow the election to proceed in accordance with the provisions that the Constitution has uh, contained within it. And that is that the, the, um, the election for president would have to be decided by the House of Representatives. It's not every representative. As I said it before, it's only one vote for each state, and it goes by who controls the state houses. 27 out of the 50 states are controlled by the Republicans. There are 21 controlled by Democrats, and in the other remaining two states, the legislatures are basically at quits. They're tied. So they would cancel each other out. So we would have, uh, if they voted along the party lines, as one would expect, you'd have a preponderance for the president. And that's the way I think we're, we're, we're headed here. I'm very, very interested to hear this, how this works out. It's going to be resolved, I think, possibly before even the 14th, because they had to have the briefs here. I'll know more probably for tomorrow's podcast when we find out, as a result of the briefs being submitted today, what day the um, Supreme Court actually decides to hold oral arguments in this case, and then we have to uh, figure out how long we can expect they would have to sit there and decide whether or not, uh, how long they're going to make a decision. I suspect this being a very fundamental issue and not overly complicated. It's significant. It's legally significant. But I don't think it's overly complicated. I think that basically um, it's like looking at a bottle. Uh, and if you think the bottle is half full or half empty, you're either predisposed to think it's half full or you're predisposed to think it's half empty. I don't think too many of these justices can be undecided. They already know what the issues are going to be. They haven't really seen the arguments as presented by these states, but they're either going to have to, or they, they, they must already know in their heart of hearts whether they believe that 
changing the rules of an election without it having gone through the state legislature is a violation of the Constitution or not. It can't take a lot of uh, thinking and, and deliberating on their part to come to that conclusion. So provided that five of them are on the side of the argument that think it's against the Constitution, uh, I don't see how the, uh, the election results in the four defendant states survive. But th for that, we'll just have to wait and see. But there's a little more to report today. You know the old saying, what goes around comes around. Yes, indeed, what goes around comes around. Eric Swalwell, in case you haven't heard of him, he's that little boy wonder that sits out there in the state of California. Eric Swalwell is a real little piece of work. He's the kind of kid who probably had his lunch money stolen, and he probably needs a good smack in the head. And I'm so glad that I'm able to do this podcast and so uh, grateful to all of you who listened to it and, and helped me, encourage me to continue to do it, because in this podcast environment, at least for the time being, um, uh, we are free from any FCC requirements, so I can say things like that. Eric Swalwell is an insufferable character. Uh, I, if you listen to him speak for any period of time, you, you can't help but come to the conclusion that he's a little off. Uh, he was the one that was at the forefront of all of these uh, allegations against um, uh, Donald Trump, and that he was an agent of Russia. He keeps saying that the evidence grows every day. I see. I keep seeing more evidence that he is than there is that he's not. And despite what show he's on, you never hear him give any evidence. He'll say things like, um, "Well, he always takes positions which uh, which help Russia," but ask him to name or give an example of such a position, and he can't do it. Now it turns out that Eric Swalwell is himself guilty of everything that he has been accusing Donald Trump of. Only he's not owned lock, stock, and barrel by the Russians. He's owned lock, stock, and barrel by the Chinese. Eric Swalwell, thinking with the wrong head, uh, allowed himself to be compromised by a Chinese spy by the name of Fang Fang, who also went by the name of Christine Fang, Christine Fang is a, um, is a woman that worked, apparently, for the Chinese government, and she's made her way around the United States uh, getting American politicians, uh, many of them, into bed and compromising them. Uh, the report revealed earlier this week uh, revealed that a suspected agent of Chinese intelligence had cultivated the mayors of American cities and other local politicians, including one former council member of a small San Francisco area town who is now a member of the U.S. House of Representatives, Eric Swalwell. This woman raised money for Swalwell's 2014 congressional campaign and even arranged to place an intern in his office. She had romantic affairs with at least two of her targets, and Swalwell is a married father of two, and he refuses to say whether he was among those that she honey-trapped. In fact, a statement from his office even says classified information. I failed to see how who Eric Swalwell is sleeping with or not sleeping with is classified information that he can stand on that statement with a straight face and try and claim he's not going to answer it on that basis. For nearly four years, Swalwell claimed that he had seen strong evidence of collusion, showing that Trump was an agent working on behalf of Russia. And now it appears that Swalwell is owned lock, stock, and barrel 
by the Chinese. It's no small surprise that he reacted harshly when Trump calls the COVID-19 virus the Chinese communist virus or the Chinese virus. Oh, it's, uh, it's xenophobic. It's this. It's that. No, this guy is a nut job. Now, further complicating the matters here is that Swalwell is a member of the House Intelligence Committee. Now, he was put on that committee by Nancy Pelosi, and he, he wasn't in Congress very long. He was only in, I think, his second term. He has no experience in intelligence matters. He was appointed to the committee, like I said, only in his second term, right after Fang had helped him raise funds for his reelection. Now, the question is asked, why did House Speaker and San Francisco Bay Area neighbor Nancy Pelosi put him in a place where the most urgent and sensitive matters of U.S. national security would cross his desk after he'd been targeted by a foreign intelligence operation? It would be good to get answers if only top men at the FBI hadn't spent the last four years, just like Swalwell, poisoning the U.S. public with Trump-Russia conspiracy theory. Now, of course... The possibility exists, right, that maybe Nancy Pelosi put him there just because she was a fellow San Fran- he was a fellow San Franciscan, and maybe she didn't know anything about Swalwell's ties to Christine Fang. Well, unfortunately, that's not true, because Nancy P- Pelosi admitted she disclosed on Thursday that she learned of Eric Swalwell's ties to this alleged Chinese spy in 2015, and she appointed him to the committee. Anyway, in the spring of that year, she told reporters in Washington that the Democratic and Republican leadership of the House, along with the leaders of the House Intel Committee, were briefed about the matter. Leaders were informed that overtures of a Chinese person were being made to members of Congress. Uh, When that was made known to the members of Congress, it was over. That was the end of any communication with those people. Well, clearly it was not over as far as the Chinese government's concerned because they're continuing to get information. She says, I think we should make sure that everybody knows what they are being subjected to, but I don't know that it means that we have to have background checks for every intern that comes into the Capitol. Why not, Ms. Pelosi? If these people have access to such sensitive information by virtue of the fact that they serve congressmen and congresswomen who potentially have access to information, why shouldn't we have the background checks on interns? I think we should. Then she goes on to say, I do think that it's unfortunate that Mr. McCarthy, she's referring to uh, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, a Republican in California, uh, is trying to make an issue of this. We all found out at the same time, the Republican leadership, that several members had been approached. Now, McCarthy, to his credit, says uh, he was not briefed on the matter, and that's why he's asking for an FBI investigation into Mr. Swalwell. So... If she knew this, Nancy Pelosi, and she kept him on the Intelligence Committee, what does that say about Nancy Pelosi? Adam Schiff, who's the chairman of the Intelligence Committee, why didn't he take Swalwell off the committee? Obviously, he's concerned about foreign interference in American affairs. All he talked about was how much evidence he had against Donald Trump, proving that he was an agent of Russia, never produced any evidence, just like Swalwell. But yet he keeps Swalwell on the Intelligence Committee, and he knows that he's compromised by this Chinese harlot. harlot. But I guess maybe it's just a, a thing that goes on in the Democratic Party, because now we know that Senator Dianne Feinstein, 
had a Chinese spy as her driver for 19 years, then says she didn't know about it. It's all completely covered up. The Bidens are owned lock, stock, and barrel by the Chicoms. It has to give one a moment of pause. We have to consider just how much of the Democratic Party is owned by the Chinese government. And I would have to say a great deal. We're only getting at the tip of the iceberg, and it's no coincidence that these revelations that are coming out about Swalwell are coming out after this recent election. Now, he was up for election. He was up for re-election, was he not? Congressmen run for re-election every two years. He was only recently re-elected back in November. Why, aren't we, why weren't we told about this before his re-election? Why wasn't all this made known then? Well, I think the answer to that is obvious. This is all being done after the fact, when nobody can really do anything about it. Because now to get rid of him, he'd have to be impeached by the House, sanctioned by the House, and gotten rid of. That's a heavy lift. It's much easier to let the public get rid of you in advance. But they didn't want that to happen. So they covered it up. But now the state of Delaware is also announcing that they're investigating Hunter Biden's taxes. You're going to see, if, if for some reason Biden prevails and becomes the president of the United States, you're going to see more and more investigations coming to the fore and covered by the mainstream media because there is no difference anymore between the mainstream media in this country and the Democratic Party. And the mainstream media is, is consistently and consistently more and more left. Uh, there, I have to think, owned by the, almost the communists or have communist influence. Uh, And you're going to see that they're going to try and make moves to get rid of Biden. And the best way to get rid of Biden is to show that he is corrupt. And the easiest way to show that he's corrupt is by extension through his son. Because it's now apparent that the modus operandi for the Bidens was to send out his son to get all this money for which he had no experience, no uh, expertise, no right to be compensated to the levels that he was from all sorts of foreign governments. He clearly only got these positions and this money by virtue of the fact that he was Joe Biden's son. And a substantial portion of that money was kicked back to Mr. Biden himself. So Biden is owned by the Chicoms. The Speaker of the House, who's in the line of ascendancy to the presidency, is obviously owned by the Chicoms. Otherwise, she would have gotten rid of Swalwell. She had a goddamn brain in her head. Dianne Feinstein is probably compromised by the Chicoms. So what the hell is the hope of this country if Biden and these Democratic swine are allowed to run it? I think what may happen is before America falls apart in the traditional sense or we lose our, our culture, we lose our sense of self, as was floated the other day on a couple of radio shows, Before we see anything else, we may see an actual move at succession. And I can only hope that succession in the 21st century doesn't result in the type of bloodshed that resulted in the 19th century the last time it was tried. And by that, of course, I'm referring to the Civil War. Let's just hope that we don't have a 21st century Civil War. If Donald Trump's reelected, I don't think we will. If Joe Biden is, we may very well have one. And unfortunately for us, Joe Biden is no Abraham Lincoln. For National Preview Online, I'm Jamie Dury.